come with us. When you wish upon a star. Come and remember the magic. What's up, all you rad dudes and dudettes? Welcome to 90s Disney, your one-stop shop for everything about Disney in the 90s. I'm your host, AJ Minotti, and joined remotely by my brothers, Mike Minotti. Excuse me. A lot more drinking these days. <laughs> and Chris Minotti. That's my keyboard. I'll keep it quiet. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> Mechanical keyboard. Awesome. Yeah, we're remote. Oh, man. This is weird. We're quarantined. We all live five minutes away from each other. I don't know who's better off, like you guys with like you know your families or me with by myself. There seems to be there's highs and lows. Highs highs and lows. lows. I feel like you'd rather trade places with me some days. Yeah, some not all. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) But we are here to talk about one of my absolute favorite movies ever made. It is the June two thousand one release. Whoa. April Fool's! Hey, <laughs> I threatened hey. you people about this. <laughs> I said it was going to happen. What's, okay, okay. The threat what was is, real. Is? And it is Atlantis The Lost Empire. Yeah, we'll um, allow it. Because it was mostly worked on in the 90s, you see. Yeah. It started that, in 1998. There, there we go. So let's take a look at uh, June 2001 and, and paint the picture. This was... The Tony Awards held on June 3rd when the producers just kind of oh. owned the, the board. Tony, nice. Tony, 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 Tony. <laughs> He's having a stroke. What? <laughs> Genius! Oh, God. Okay, theater notes. Okay. Uh, here, here's a one that kind of blew my mind. The first Fast and the Furious movie came out on June 18th of two. Should have been the last, too. Wow, you no! How dare you? It's, it's you the t- only one I've I seen. I just don't like those movies. I don't. Man, there could we could have been getting Atlantis Nine instead. Yeah, <laughs> two Atlantis, two Lost, two, t- <laughs> <laughs> two Empire, two Empire. Uh, let's see. The number one song the week of the movie's release was um, "Angel" by Shaggy and Rayvon. You know, give us know a sample, song. AJ. Come on, you sing a little. I got nothing for you. <laughs> It's, I bet it's one of the songs if we heard it, we would know it, but man. It's possible. <laughs> the, following, the, the, the following week was uh, uh, Lady Marmalade. You know that one. Do I? He's got a dog. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Oh, yes. Oh, my cool. sisters. Come on. You know that. The Moulin Rouge song? I'll just pretend that I do and we can move on. <laughs> okay, great. And uh, on June 15th, um, the day the movie came out, the Los Angeles Lakers beat the Philadelphia 76ers four games to one for the 55th NBA championship. Oh, finally, the Exciting. Lakers won one. Yeah, right? Poor team. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, we talked about this before, but this movie, uh, much like Hunchback, was written by none other than now what I will call friend of the show, Tab Murphy. We love Tab. I yeah. love Tab a great deal. He is a great guy. Uh, he has been very generous with his time uh, for our sake. Yeah, how nice of him to do this twice. Oh, I know. And and, and uh, we, we had some really tough back and forth, obviously, with everything going on. Everyone's schedules are all screwed up. We, we pushed it back, pushed it back. But but he was very out of me. He's like, we are going to get this done, I promise. And, and we had a great chat uh, kind of about how the idea for this movie came about, why they decided to make an action movie and not another musical. Uh, we spent some time talking about his earliest drafts of the film, what was cut from the movie, what his influences were. And we are going to play that interview for you 
right now. All right. But I can prove Atlantis exists. Hello, everybody. We have a very special guest this month on 90s Disney. And uh, you know him from our Hunchback of Notre Dame episode. He is screenwriter extraordinaire Tab Murphy. Tab, welcome back to the show. Oh, happy to be here, AJ. Really, truly. Well, I uh, we, we teased this the last time we spoke, that even though this isn't strictly 90s, I'll take a little April Fool's creative license here, because uh, as we talked about, you were also the screenwriter, among many other Disney projects, on Atlantis The Lost Empire, which coincidentally happens to be one of my absolute favorite movies. Oh, that's great. That's, I, I, did, I had no idea. But yeah. in all fairness to your sort of rigorous standard of the 90s, I would just add that uh, the development of this movie began in about 98. So you're sort of well within the limit, even though it was and released there, in 2001. So. There's our justification. So <laughs> if, anyone, if anyone wants to come at me. There, there you, go. you go. You have it right from the writer's mouth. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. Let's um, let's get into it. It was... Uh, uh, in my, in terms of the uh, you know the things that I worked on for Disney, it was the third feature that I ended up ended up uh, writing for them, and in many ways for me personally, uh, you know one of the most satisfying because unlike uh, Hunchback and Tarzan, which are tremendous films, and I, I really enjoyed working on, but those were adaptations, and this was really a wholly kind of original idea that uh, that Kirk uh, Wise, Gary Troutsdale, the directors of Hunchback, and Don Hahn, the producer of Hunchback, uh, and myself cooked up. Um, so, yeah, it kind of holds a spe- very special place in for me, uh, even the, despite the fact that it didn't really do well, uh, it didn't, wasn't perceived as having done well at the when it was released at the box office. There are various theories for that, but... Uh, but I uh, I had a blast on this, yeah. So, kind of, kind of walk me through like 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 how how did the uh, the directors and, and the producers everyone how how did it all come together to say like this is the movie we're going to make? How how did you guys land on Atlantis as the subject for the next film? Well, I could talk for an hour without you ever asking another question because it is a it makes my fairly job. long and convoluted answer. Uh, not convoluted, but it took a while. Uh, but the genesis of, of it really began with the winding down of Hunchback, because uh, Kirk and Gary and Don um, and myself had such a great time on that film that there was this general feeling, this general sense that they wanted to kind of, quote, keep the team together and move right away into something else. And by that period of time, uh, both Kirk and Gary and Don had you know, a considerable cachet at the studio. Um, and, and there was this, this kind of, this kind of, I don't know, this dovetail of kind of feeling and synergy that along with the idea that the three of them felt like they'd done sort of the musical to death as it were, and were anxious and itching to explore something new and try something new. Disney itself as a corporate entity and the creative executives were of the same mind let's not do a repeat let's try to you know break some new ground and do something different so all of those things you know sort of came into play at the time when they were looking for their next project um and i know that they the three of them had been talking about something uh they had indicated to me that they would love me to come off back on board and and write it whenever they landed on it but you know they also invited me to participate in kind of just, you know, really brainstorming ideas. 
they were pretty clear by that point that they wanted to do something that was a throwback to sort of the live action Disney adventures of yore. All the stuff that we all went to see as kids in the theater, whether it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Swiss Family Robinson, or uh, even though this wasn't uh, a Disney film, Journey to the Center of the Earth was a big one. You know, we, we, we got together, we talked about all these kinds of films uh, that we wanted to do. Um, and uh, so, you know, the sort of conventional legend you hear about in terms of the development of this particular project which is true, actually, it actually happened. Uh, but there was, you know, more that preceded it and more that came after. But we, the, the four of us, um, got together one day for lunch at a Mexican restaurant in Burbank. And we sat down and we kind of had a very sort of general idea, a specific idea kind of of the genre in terms of it being a boy's own adventure. Like, you know, and I think it was even floated that th there would be no room for songs in this movie that this was going to be straight sort of straight ahead balls to the wall action adventure you know and in fact i don't know if you're aware but during the production long after i had departed they had t-shirts made up one of, of which i was really bummed that i never got one which is you know Atl atlantis uh more explosions less songs kind of you know what that was the mantra that they sort of wore around the shop as it were um so we had a, a long and you know like i mean it seemed like the lunch went on for a couple hours to me but in hearing retellings of it it went on for five hours and i don't think it went <laughs> i mean you know, these things grow and i have to say too just in general you know you're asking me to talk about memories that i had that are back in the you know like the late 90s so you just have to you know everybody has a different take on what those memories to them might have represented and what they've become and all that sort of thing. So these are my specific recollections, plus or minus whatever brain cells I've lost along the way <laughs> or forgotten or, right, you right. know, misinterpreted or whatever. So gee, just bear all of that in mind. Uh, but so we had this great lunch and we just talked about the films we loved. We talked about the films we loved and, the, the kinds of films that, that we that inspired us and that the kind of movie Kirk and Gary and Don wanted to make. And I, you know, I chipped in, but I was also a good listener trying to sort of assimilate, you know, all these things. And I think by the end of that lunch, without going into too much details about all everything we talked about, I think by the end of that lunch, it was decided that we wanted to tell a story about explorers going into the earth and finding, we didn't know could be Atlantis. I think Atlantis may have come up at that time. It could be something else. It, it was kind of, it was a little loosey-goosey at that point. Um, I don't know if I brought up Atlantis or not. Uh, it doesn't matter who, you know, but, but I think collectively we came out of that lunch with the idea that we were going to go forward with an idea with, with this, you know, kind of very general approach. Now, was there a sense at the time that you wanted to do something original or, or, or was it still open to be an adaptation of something? No, we were definitely, we definitely, they, they definitely wanted to do something original. I definitely wanted to write their, whatever it is, their original idea into an original screenplay. I mean, I, so we were all, we just felt like we could, not uh, literally, but we could cherry pick all the best parts of all the movies we loved growing up and somehow put them into a blender 
and come up with something that would, you know, feel kind of fresh and unique, although a bit of an homage in some, in many ways to those kinds of movies. So that's, I think that's what, you know, sort of drove the engine initially, you know. Uh, and now I don't, I think, I, you know, again, memory serving or not serving, but I think we came out of that and I'm not, but sh shortly thereafter, uh, they were like, uh, you know, we made some decisions about Atlantis. Um, I went home. I remember specifically going home and going, you know, cause we talked about all sorts of things about, I did a lot of research on Atlantis, Edgar Casey, all that kind of cool, weird, and sort of like, what could I take out of there that would be great for an animated movie? You know, is there stuff in there? It turns out there was a lot of stuff that was really cool. Atlantis and its power source, uh, mysterious power source, was a great jumping off point for us in thinking about Atlantis under the earth. And um, But, it, you know, it's really funny because I, I early iterations of the treatment i mean one of the first treatments i wrote i think the very first treatment i wrote it was called pirates of atlantis because we were also kind of like you know our our explorers are kind of like you know like they're like a gang of pirates and and i don't know we we just had you know it's like anyway we went off on a few tangents before we landed on exactly what the movie was going to be and one of the first was that i went away and i wrote this treatment and I just took Atlantis to heart, and I thought, well, maybe it's, you know, it's not in the Earth so much as at the bottom of the ocean, like the Marianas Trench, and it's got this dome over it, and it's protected, and people have been living down there. And so I started, I went off and just wrote this treatment about, you know, the sub was still there, but the, our guys get taken into this dome under the sea, and there's big battles with guys riding sharks and all this, yep. shit, you know, I mean, just stuff that was just like out there. And I turned it in, and <laughs> I think they were like, "What the hell did you do, Deb?" And, and not in a like crazy way, but I mean, like they, I went in for a meeting, and they were like, "Well, this is really cool, but this is not the movie we talked about. This is not the movie we want to make. We want to have explorers go into the earth, not under the sea." I said, "Okay, guys, got it." But you know, it's funny because sometimes as a writer you have ideas that come up and you just have to clear them out. And the way you clear them out is like an exorcism of writing. It's just like, so that was an exorcism of getting what is, was in my head about Atlantis out so that I could clear the space and open up the, you know, synapses for all of this other stuff that came in through the directors and Don and, and then, uh, and then it weirdly, I mean, you know, I went away from there a little bit. Ouch, ouch. I yep. fucked up, kind of. Not yep. fucked up, but I was like, ah, it just wasn't. But weirdly, that just propelled me to figure out how we were going to get into this movie and how it was going to be. And out of that, it became, I thought, okay, we got this character, Milo Thatch. Uh, what really cracked it for me was giving a uh, some folklore to the somebody who had gone to Atlantis before, the Shepherd's Journal. And once I had that, that was like a roadmap, like Arnie and Milo became kind of Arnie Sacknewsome a little bit, right? So he had his Arnie Sacknewsome. Not Milo didn't become, but he had his Arnie Sacknewsome. You know, like in Journey to the Center of the Earth, they're always looking for AS carved into the wall as they go down into the Earth. Well, he had the Shepherd's Journal, which was the the way into the Earth. And once we got that, and we kind of created a mythology for Atlantis stuff. I turned it, I was so like, 
like I felt like a rabid Wolverine when I was writing that second iteration. And I, I was 10 pages in and I knew I got it. And I didn't even finish the treatment. I just turned in the first 10 pages. I said, guys, this is what I'm doing. And then they were all like, whoa, this is exactly what we want. So that was great. And then I finished it. I think the treatment ended up being like 25 or 30 pages long, you know, but I had it, you know, pretty much mapped out the whole movie. Nice. Yeah. So uh, you, you talk about going into research for Atlantis. Um, what was kind of your method for, for researching the history? Because, you know, late 90s, we, we were starting at the Internet. Um, I understand that a lot of internet research started. was done there for this was, film. So there was a lot of stuff. I mean, I I went in and I just read as much stuff about Atlantis as I could, and I went to the the wacko pages, dude. Like <laughs> I writing it out in the Nevada desert, who claims to have been there. Those are the pages I wanted to read. Not the you know, I read the Edgar Casey stuff, which was great, but I went and tried to find up the wacko pages of guys' theories and people putting stuff out there. This happened to me like, okay, whatever. But what did you, let's see what you're writing about. Cause some of it was really compelling. Some of it was really cool, you know? Um, so yeah, I was just drawing from everywhere because it wasn't like as easy as Googling this and that in those days. Uh, mm -hmm. But the real thing, you know, and it's, in, you know, there's so much, you know, to talk about Atlantis. And one of the things after the fact, when the movie came out and I just have to dispel this right up front, there was a lot of chatter about Atlantis uh, kind of uh, either plagiarizing or borrowing heavily uh, from Nadia, which is an anime movie that had a lot of similarities. Now, granted, it did. It had a lot of similarities. Ours had a lot of similarities because we based it on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We based it on Journey to the Center of the Earth. Nadia had a lot of similarities because they based their movie on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and their Atlantis. But the thing about it is, I had I was completely unaware of this movie Nadia at the time. God's honest truth. I went onto the internet and there was a lot made about the crystals were the same and she wore with the princess wore one around her neck and it was it was the power it was connected to the power of crystals that powered Atlantis. I found all that yep. shit on the internet, dude. I went to this site they were talking about Atlantis. Atlantis was powered by crystals. I know for a fact there were these giant crystals. I thought that could be cool for an animated movie, right? Okay, let's make power source because we were sitting around going, "What's the power source, guys?" I don't know. What is it's some? It's like some nuclear reactor, but what is it? And that's the thing that our bad guy is going to want when he goes there. It's all going to come. These reversals are going to happen. They're going to be after something. Well, what does it look like though? And so I went on. I came back and said, "How about crystals, guys? Crystals are weird. They're, you know." And they were like. Great, sounds good. You can trip off a little crystal from the main crystals, and uh, anyway. And then later, of course, I mean, you know, I was reading all this Nadia stuff, and I was like, okay, whatever, guys. But I'm here to tell you, I got it off some wacko website. On the I'm I'm glad you brought that up because you know I I I read about the people you know making the claims about the Nadia similarities. I'm like, how do I approach the writer of the movie? And be like, did you know about? Oh yeah, that? I so I'm glad you just brought Nadia. it up. Because I figured nobody watches Japanese anime. No, get away with no. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. You know, there are tropes. You know what I mean? Mm, exactly, so, yeah. There's a trope for a young boy, or in our case, a young man who's kind of a nerd, who gets thrown into an adventure, and he meets a princess, and he falls in love. You could, you know, dress that up in, um, you know, thousand different wardrobes to 
to make it look different, right? But it's still going to have those kind of same elements. And so that's what I feel like the Nadia comparison was doing. They were going to, look, I didn't animate. I wasn't standing beside the animators. I didn't determine whether Milo's glasses should be round or not. I don't know what, I can't speak for all of that, the visual references that a lot of people put up, okay? I don't know if Disney animators were so taken with anime that they decided to do an homage to some of their favorite films while they were doing it. I don't know. All I know is when I brought it up to Kirk Weiss, he said, I didn't even know a naughty existed until after the movie came out. Okay. And that guy's a stand up guy. So he was, I, you know, he, there was, so was there down the line ideas brought to them that were from maybe like inspired by Nadia in, in some of the animators or who knows? I don't know. You could probably spend 10 years with a detective going back through and interviewing everybody and find the germ of an idea. This guy knew about Nadia and he suggested the squared off fingers or whatever. I don't, whatever. <laughs> no. I mean, but there was no, believe me, Disney does not need to rip off anybody. Hmm. They just don't. I mean, that's ludicrous that they would do that or even think right, of doing right. it. But is there similarities? Of course there are. You know, and I would say the similarities are born out of the general storytelling rather than, oh, a decision made to actually rip off another movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. what I take. All right. So kind of piggybacking off that, actually. So you, you talk about like 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 the character of Milo. And one of the things that always drew me to this film, you know, it, it, it's clear it's inspired by things like 20,000 Leagues and Journey to the Center of the Earth. But Milo is kind of this very unlikely hero in the film because he isn't like the Indiana Jones type guy. He's very much the kind of wiry nerd who almost has no business being down there. So how did you how did you decide to make that your protagonist? Well, I think that was just kind of a it's how I wrote him. I wrote him with a lot of comedy and a lot of self-effacing kind of, you know, and, and granted and and kind of I didn't, you know, not the bumbling, stumbling, you know, nerd guy but i mean you know just earnest and he had a he, he had a legacy in, in, that he see in uh in my early i think in my early treatments and even maybe into the first act uh, first draft i'm sorry he had a a legacy because he was directly related to one of the greatest explorers ever and he just was always trying to live up to that and and finish his grandfather's uh, you know a, a drive uh, to, to find Atlantis and all that so he had a lot of motivation he just didn't have the he was just thin and he didn't have the skills you know so it's just that earnestness of, of wanting to finish something and, a, and and continue a legacy that he felt he had um, is was kind of the starting point for the character now Michael J Fox came in and he brought a lot of great stuff to it because you know, he just did his Michael J. Fox thing and the directors and everybody sort of animators like they really if you if you look at the character of Milo, I mean, you know, there's so many kind of moments where that's really just Michael J. Fox riffing on the character in terms of like his reactions, his actions. And, you know, so that was great. I mean, you know, he really took it to the next level. So. I don't know if that answers your question specifically. Mm-hmm, yeah. And just, just, you know, overall, I feel like thinking about this, this movie seems to have like more kind of primary characters than most animated films, especially like, you know, throughout the nineties. Um, 
just kind of what was the process of creating these characters? What what were you drawing from? Was it was it intentionally just trying to find all these different international themes to carry through, or, or just kind of what what prompted so many characters to be part of this journey? Well, we all knew we wanted it to be a um, you know a team. We wanted it to be a team. We kind of liked the idea of it being an international team, but really, you know, I'll tell you one thing that sort of dictated to me because i brought a list of characters to the guys and i would say of the initial list i brought most of them made it into the movie and are, are the characters there uh moliere vinnie uh a cookie I, you know but what 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 sort of dictated to me um the characters that came to be was the time period 1914 right so 1914 is you're just embarking on this new century but the remnants of the old century is still very much alive. So that gave rise to the idea of we could have an old sourdough cook from a wagon train because it wasn't that far removed from the 1860s, you know, when he was a young man. Now he's an old guy. And he's doing the same thing for a submarine going, you know, under the earth to look for Atlantis. So and then, you know, like uh, Vinny was, uh, I just came up with this Italian demolitions expert, you know, out of the, you know, I don't know how old he was. I guess he's a little too old for the Napoleonic Wars. But, but I mean, of, of you know, like, you know, World War One, you know, was still, you know, was, uh, you know, was just winding down in 1914, right? Or winding up, I don't know. But, you know, so it made, so that guy came out of that demolitions expert. Moliere was just. I just had this idea for this guy. I didn't, you know, the the name came after the came after I conceptualized the character. But I had this guy, I had this idea, this French guy, who was just an d- expert on dirt. I just wanted somebody an expert on dirt. He was like a mole. He was just like he just, you know, tasted it. He did all this stuff, and then Moliere was the perfect name for it. So that, and then they the. The artists ramped it up tenfold because they gave him this kind of mole-like, and it was like a perfect synergy of an idea that led to the name that led to the artists coming in and doing their rendition of it. And it's just one of those great things where you just, I step back and I look at the synergy of it all and I go, that's a great character. I mean, you know, that's how animation is supposed to work, you know. So it was really, that was cool. So, Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I can't remember who's el- who else is in the. Uh, oh, the the old lady was I think Don I, that ran the switchboard. I think that was a Don Hahn idea. Like, let's give this old lady who's running a switchboard the, the the you know the let's put her in charge of communications for the sub. I mean, I'd like okay, that's great, you know. So everybody contributed though. Everybody, you know, everybody was kind of throwing everything into the pot. It was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Very creative. A lot of fun. It's one thing I specifically want to ask you. Anyone who's a fan of this movie, you, you read the trivia, listen to the commentaries. There's always talk of this character who got deleted from the movie called Zoltan, who he had like a voice line that like survived through like many cuts. That what was, what was I, Zoltan's deal? Well, Zoltan was a nod to Edgar Casey because Edgar Casey, you know, like that was our nod to. So we saw him as a, as a medium, you know, like who, you know, it was he was a great character. <laughs> he always, I, you know. It, you know, I'd have to go back and read some of my other drafts to really, you know, talk about him in depth. But I loved him, and and uh, we all loved him. And uh, yeah, he was a he was a terrific character. Uh, but he was, you know, the goateed and mysterious, uh, you know, sort of guy who could speak to spirits and and uh, and, and had a, a direct connection to the other world and 
and he was kind of he had you know but he did become superfluous later uh because it felt like he was more of a gimmick than an actual team member you know at mm -hmm. the end of the day i think uh that was the decision but yeah he survived through a few drafts and everyone uh, just knows the, the line zoltan is okay <laughs> <laughs> that was in the cuts for a while that's great because, like I said, it's one of the things you know. I, I learned about that in the in the Blu-ray commentary. And it's like always like, what? I wonder what that character was supposed to do. So uh, cool to hear about it. Scenes, and I'm not going to tell this right, but he goes into he get his, he goes into a shop in Atlantis, and he's on the. I can't re you know on, honestly, and I apologize, AJ. I can't remember what his story through line was in those drafts whether he was a part of the conspiracy or he was trying to find information out or whatever mm -hmm. but i remember writing this one scene where he goes into a sandal maker's shop uh and everybody in atlantis wore these particular sandals and he's in there and his he's zoltan and he's gonna <coughs> excuse me use the powers of his mind to get in this guy and get what he wants from this guy right so then you cut to outside he comes out kind of dragging out and he uh, he didn't get what he wanted, but you you look down at his feet, and he's now wearing sandals. <laughs> so he got a new pair of sandals. <laughs> you know, anyway, just silly stuff that probably wouldn't have mattered one bit in the, the major movie. But you know, as a writer, you remember little bits. So that was one. Nice. So another kind of famous change to the movie through production was the original intro to the movie was this group of Vikings searching for Atlantis. Yeah, absolutely. And then that got changed into the current opening we have with the flashback to the destruction of Atlantis. I know the idea, and I should have wrote the name down. It, it was one of the story, or um, was it an animator or someone who came up with the idea to, to, to show Keita at a young age? But I don't know well, if you had any involvement with, with writing that out, or was that after you were no, done I'll off the project? That, that's a great story, really. It's a great story. And uh, uh, it, it came after I had departed the project because, as a, you know, like they were well in that whole sequence, the opening had already been animated. I mean, I can't tell you how many how much money that cost. I mean, you know, that they spent on that opening sequence. You've probably seen it if you've seen the, you know, the, the DVD. It's on the DVD as an extra. You can watch it. I mean, you know, so, yes, that was always our opening. It was always our opening. The the image of the Shepherd's Journal floating in the ocean kind of then then cutting to washington dc and we meet milo and all this stuff and then he learned he you know somebody's got the all that stuff so that was the opening forever and i think it was john sanford john sanford was head of story i believe i could be wrong uh and then they had other writers working on it the guys like dave reynolds were working on it at the time as too but i think it was John, I think it was John Sanford. That sounds right. Yeah. Came to a meeting one day and he said, you know, guys, my job as head of story is to sort of keep the story on track. And sometimes I'm, you know, like, like it's on track. And sometimes I've got to be the bad guy and say something isn't working. And I, and I'm just going to put this on the table. And I don't think our opening works for the movie that comes after it. You know, I think we've got to do something different. Now, I don't know if he had the specifics of uh, maybe it was him who pitched the specifics of we should see, you know, Kida at a young age. We should set up our, the rest of our story through that opening. And, and it, it, you know, like and I think the way I heard it is that everybody like scoffed, <laughs> like we've already animated, you know, no way that, mm -hmm. just, you know, but I think it was Kirk was telling me that it's one of those things where you'd hate to hear it. You just hate to hear it. Because you know he's right, you know. So they all went away. They took 
they decided to give it 24 hours, cool off and go see what, you know. And the way the, the way I heard it is Gary Trousdale at home that night at dinner got an inspiration and he sketched out the first few opening frames of the movie on, on a napkin in like kind of stick figures with the blowing up and the things coming out of the explosion and and the destruction of Atlantis and the girl and all this stuff. And so, I mean, when they all reconvened and Gary showed them these napkin sort of, here's the first five images of the movie, I think they were all in, on board because I think they all knew too that it was a really good idea from the get-go. It's just sometimes it's like being a writer, you know, you have a favorite scene and then somebody tells you, you know, I don't, I think that scene's got to go for the rest of the story to work. And you go, no way, man, that's my favorite scene. Right. (laughs) And then, you know, you go walk away and you brood and you, ah, you kick the dirt, you know, like a kid and you come back and you go, yeah. And then you cut it and then you go, whoa, actually it does work better. You know? So that's, I think that's what happened to those guys. They uh, had to go away and kick the dirt like a bunch of kids that don't get what they want. And they came back and they rallied and then they got something better ultimately, you know. So anyway, I just think that's such a great story about Gary just mm-hmm. getting inspired and, and, and boom, you know, you know, and that's how he is. I mean, he could draw stuff right there in the room, you know. Here's an idea, guys. Da, 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 da. Gary, like this? Oh, you're spooking me, man. You're spooking me. <laughs> <laughs> Move two seats away. That's crazy. <laughs> so another aspect of the film that that you know a, a lore nerd, someone like me who likes you know mythology of Lord of the Rings and things, I, I like how kind of fleshed out the Atlantean culture is in the movie. Yeah, down to the fact that it has a language that is fully yeah. you know built out by Mark Okran. Yeah, when you were it, writing the script, way into that, they just took a deep dive into mm-hmm. all of this stuff, which I I think was great. A lot of that stuff, AJ, came after me. I mean, you know, okay. you know, you have to understand that uh, by the time we had the script in a good place, even though, you know, as, as the, the lone writer up to a point, you realize it's in good hands because the directors have a vision. You realize other writers are going to come in and do the day-to-day grind that we, I think we talked about on Hunchback a little bit uh, and contribute. And the head of story is the head of story because his job is to make sure that everything stays you know, uh, where it's supposed to go and doesn't go flying off the rails, you know. And uh, so, yeah, but I heard the stories and I would revisit. I go back in and see the guys and because that this particular movie was very personal to me because it was something that we all kind of created together. I wrote. And uh, so I had a vested interest in it, uh, you know, a little bit more than the other projects I'd worked on because I really just wanted it to work. I really wanted it to be good and everybody to, you know, like, you know, like, and, and that, that it realized its potential and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so I go back in and I'd see the big long replica of the sub and I'd be like, can I get my hands on that after production? <laughs> so cool, man. It was awesome. And, you know, they would tend to, in those days at the Disney, Disney Animation Building here uh, um, uh, in Burbank, they would tend to give uh, a production a floor or a wing so that you would walk into a wing and you'd know immediately that there was a movie in production here. The director's offices were there, the producer's offices. So you walk into the Atlantis wing and it was it looked like a set from Indiana Jones. It was all about exploration, about cool stuff, and they just put all this kind of mocked up a bunch of 
great uh, art direction for as you walked in and it just felt cool it was really awesome i loved going there <laughs> so I, when you when you wrote did you did you have a sense though that there was going to be an atlantean language like like was that some that was part of your process or did that all come well, after the fact no i mean we had the, the directors were always talking about we got to get we got to you know wouldn't it be great if we could do the atlantean language in subtitles you know and that's a few of the characters from Atlantis did know English, and that's how they would speak. That, that mostly it would be a form, and I would be like, "Yeah, that's awesome," but I'm not writing that. I'm going to write English. You guys can figure that out. So because I had to tell the story parts, and so that's. Uh, but I was always I was on board. I thought that was great. You know, it's like you know, it's one of the things I admired about movies like Dances with Wolves. You know, that they they allowed the the culture to express themselves. You know, in the case of Dance with Wolves, the Sioux Indians to express them in their own language. I thought that was brilliant. You know, and and really, it just made it it lends an air of authenticity. Now I don't know mm-hmm. how much authenticity it lends to Atlantis: The Lost Empire, but I thought it was cool that they were dedicated to doing something that you know that that followed the rules uh, that you set up about a lost civilization instead of them all speaking English and hey, what are you guys doing down here? You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like, like I like. There's that line in the movie where where they first meet the Atlanteans, and Milo mentions how they have like kind of like a like like a like a mother language, like the Tower of Babel. Um, so again, like like I like was was that like an idea you had too that like whatever language they had would be this root, or, or is that something that also came after? That came after. That came after. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think I I I could be wrong, but I I don't think I really addressed uh, any language issues because it was something that was still in the formation stage whether these guys were going to be able to do it pull it off Mm -hmm. stuff right but i'll tell you one thing that was a lot of fun you know my first draft was 150 pages dude that's a long movie 50 pages okay that's a long movie about what was left on the cutting room floor those guys looked read the script and for a while all they referred to it as monster fest because mm-hmm. we had so many more scenes of great monsters and things that they ran they ran into and obstacles they had to overcome on their way to Atlantis. And eventually, they were like, oh, my God, we got to get them to Atlantis. So a lot of that stuff had to be excised and cut. And there was just so much cool stuff. I mean, you know, I had this whole hunting sequence that the Atlanteans were participating in, which was how... They Milo first saw them, which was a sort of a um, my homage to First Men in the Moon. I don't know if you know that movie, but oh, dude, you're a nerd. I mean, you love Ray Harryhausen. Do you like Ray Harryhausen movies? I mean, mm-hmm. so go check out First Men in the Moon, and it's I borrow I didn't borrow, but that movie I made Gary I think come and watch a really bad print we got screened for us. I don't know at Disney or Warner Bros. I don't know where we were. But that movie inspired me, too, because that movie is about a, a, a scientist and a guy and, and this girl, a woman uh, uh, who are neighbors who he's trying to, you know, he's built, he's built this projectile that he wants, he thinks he can get to the moon because he's created this substance that will lift and defy gravity. So one thing leads to another. The three of them blast off in this thing and they end up on the moon and they go inside the moon and there's this lost civilization inside the moon. Right. So there's again, you know, maybe I ripped off First Men on the Moon. Not not even. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? 
But there's this great sequence in First Men on the Moon where these ant men, because they are like little bugs, people, they 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 do battle with this giant yep. caterpillar, man. It's just awesome. It's Ray Harry Hosen at his best. And they're zapping it and they're shooting. And, you know, so I wanted to do, like, I always pitch the guys, what? You know, the Atlanteans, let's have them out hunting something, like, really cool and, like, some monster, Ray Harryhausen monster-like. And that's how we first see them, you know, how, how Milo stumbles upon them as hunters, you know, and Kida and the whole thing, you know. Uh, so anyway, that was there for a while. Then that were these the uh, were these the the much talked about lava whales? <laughs> no. Is that what they were hunting? No, that was a completely separate thing, dude. Okay. Yeah. No. 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 The lava whales was a completely separate thing. That was they had a, you know they had a Mike Mignola doing a lot of monster art for that movie. Mm-hmm. Mike's great. I mean, uh, for the longest time they referred to the movie as Monster Fest. That's how they called it. That's what they called it. I mean, so. They had monsters. They had all sorts of stuff. And the, the things that survived, you know, from my draft are the, the bugs, that, the lightning bugs that come out and start fires. The, uh, uh, what else is there? I can't even, that's kind of really. There's like that brief glimpse of like a big bug looking monster just like pops out of a cave. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Turn yeah. the fork that in the was, road. Yeah. yeah that's, that actually, that, that was mine. Stayed in. You know, that was the idea of Milo not like not reading the map correctly and saying, mm-hmm. It's this way, guys, and they start down and the thing comes out and then Okay, okay. No, it's this way. Uh it, it you know, and but there was yeah, I mean there was a lot of stuff that got had to go by the wayside, but you mm-hmm. know. I mean, that was the beauty of it too though, because those guys, uh Kirk and Gary and Don uh, the studio had pretty much said, okay, you guys go down this path. We're behind you. So they were really, they were not to me, you know, when we had all got together and shared ideas and all this stuff. And I knew in my head, well, this is too much material for an animated movie. I said, so guys, what do you want me to do? And they said, write it, <laughs> put it all right. You know, so it was great. I, you know, like I said, my first draft was 151 pages, man. It was awesome. You know, you rarely get to do that, you know? So yeah. And then it was a question, of course, of, you know, trimming and finding how we, you know, that this, that, and the other. And, and eventually, you know, a lot of good stuff had to be uh, cut and, and it left on the cutting room floor, including the lava whales. So, so just, just as a screenwriter and, and the kind of the process, having worked on two musicals prior to this, how, how different was it for you to be writing just kind of a straight up action adventure film? How, how did that kind of change just the way you wrote? Well, I was excited because uh, I'll tell you. I knew that, uh, that, you know, that Alan Menken and Steve Schwartz were going to come in and rip my script apart and turn everything into songs. So I was thrilled, man. I was like, this, this is the shit, man. I'm going to have, I'm, you know, like things I'm actually going to write are going to end up on screen. This is, that was, you know, or at least a, 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 an iteration of it. I was thrilled, man. It was great. It was great. So, it, no, it was fun. It, it, you know what, it, I'll tell you, the answer is I wrote it like a live action movie. I said, guys, I'm going to write it like a live action. They said, go for it, go for it. Because there was enough business in there that, you know, made it an animated movie. I mean, you know, uh, in, in, in so many ways, um, that you could never shoot live action. Although I hear that, you know, you hear the rumors that, Oh, they're going to do Atlantis as a live action. Good luck. That budget's going to be North of 200 million. Easily. (laughs) But, you know, like the submarine and the ship and that, that whole sequence with the underwater, you know, sort of scorpion crustacean monster, you know, 
uh, lobster monster, we used to call it, I think, I'm not sure. Uh, but all of that stuff, and then the subpods, that's one of my proudest inventions, too. Launch the subpods. Every time I hear that, I go, I thought of that. Subpods, <laughs> man. <laughs> so that's cool. And they look cool. They look exactly like I envisioned them, you know, and sort of swarming bee group, uh, swarming bees, you know, of, of, of these little mini subs. That was cool. Yeah. I had, look, and I unleashed the 14 year old boy in me on that script, man, as did the directors, as did the producer. And we had a ball. I mean, really. In a nutshell, that's what we did. So, one of the things I always like to talk to writers about when, when you know, they have a play or a movie or anything comes out, what's what's something that stood out to you that you wrote it, you had it in your head as, as one way, and you saw it on screen completely different than what you had in mind. You're like, oh, yeah, that works. Well, anything I, like hey, jump I, out at you? I know exactly what I'm going to say, and that is that sort of descent into the the labyrinth uh, down in the labyrinth where the power source is kept. And the visualization of that power source, right? I can't recall exactly how I wrote it. I mean, I did write that there was a secret chamber where the crystals of Atlantis, you know, resided, right? But I, they took that to the nth degree. I mean, you know, and I think they started a version of it with the opening, uh, you know, because I didn't write that opening. So they had already sort of wired in how, you know, some of that was going to work. And, but that whole thing with the spinning and the, you know, that was just awesome. I, I was awesome. I remember I, I hadn't seen a stitch of it, not a frame of it. Uh, and I'd been busy, you know, doing other things, you know, and I, and I would go check in with them and go visit. And they'd, I'd say, how's it coming? Oh, it's great. It's great. Can't wait for you to see it. But I never saw it. Like, I saw a lot of Hunchback. I got to go to, you know, I saw a lot of work in progress stuff on him. Mm-hmm. Not so much on Tarzan, in fact, nothing on Tarzan, and nothing on Atlantis. So when I saw it, I saw it for the first time at a cast and crew screening, uh, the, the cast and crew screening before the premiere. Um, and uh, so that was, uh, it was a great night. That was a great night. I went alone, you know, and uh, I had a, you know, and it, and it was just great. It was magical. And I think everybody that worked on it was there, and they, they loved the movie. And, you know, you never know what it's going to do, like, I mean, unfortunately, all these movies are judged by box office and how successful they are and how wide of an audience it reaches and all that stuff. But on that night, you know, prior to that uh, release, you just didn't know. You didn't know whether it was going to come out and just be the next big $200 million Disney blockbuster or if it was going to... There was no thought that it was going to die on the vine. We all, you know, everybody worked hard on it. Everybody believed in it. Uh, And it didn't die on the vine, but it certainly didn't, you know... Uh, you know, it didn't, you know, make more than the last movie, which is always what they were trying to do. Find something that would just, you know, break the bank, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it was a, that was a great night. It was a lot of fun. And I got to talk to a lot of people I hadn't seen in a couple of years because that's how long it takes to, mm-hmm. to you know, make these movies. Um, but, uh, yeah, no. And, and uh, I don't think I don't think I for whatever reason, I don't think I went to the premiere because I was. I don't know. I was probably I I can't remember recall. Uh, I didn't go to the premiere that they had down in Hollywood and all that stuff. So I think I think I had to go to that cast and crew screening. That was the only one I was going to see before it got released. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was living in Canada at the time. No, no, I wasn't. So I I don't know what why I didn't go to the premiere, but I didn't. I remember. Um, but one of the greatest things that happened was that I 
Uh, I wasn't living in Canada at the time, but I visited a lot with my kids up there. We had friends up there. And on one visit, my boys, so that would have been my two oldest and all their kid friends from up there, there was like six of them. It was opening, I think it was opening weekend of Atlantis or second weekend. And I took them all into a theater in Calgary and I sat with them and, I, and we watched it. And it was great. It was great. It was better than any premiere I could have gone through. You know, my sons and their friends watching this movie, eating popcorn, caught up in it. Like, I just remember being a kid their age watching movies like that. And they were came out, you know, with that buzz, you know, you come out with it, mm-hmm. seeing something cool, you know. Uh, that was special. That was cool. If, you, if you'll indulge me, um, since I got you here, uh, let me share a quick little story with you that <clears throat> sure. I will appreciate. So, like I mentioned, I absolutely love this movie uh 2001 so i would have been 17 years old when this came out um and you know big fan of disney like like action movies so like this is this was my wheelhouse like it felt like it was made for me i was like okay cool so i think it was like the fourth time i went to go see the movie in theaters because i saw it a bunch of times and i convinced my best friend to go with me and we were the only two in the theater and it was like late in the run and everything so i'm like sweet like here we go and he's kind of like all right what are we doing whatever we'll watch your disney movie and, you know, we both came out. He was like, oh, that was actually really fun. Like, a great movie. All right, cool. You liked it. So he worked at the local grocery store at the time. And they had some kind of cardboard cutout display of Milo and Kita for, like, the Golden Books. <laughs> a couple weeks later, he comes to my house holding this display of Milo and Kita. He goes, hey, they're going to throw this away. I figured you'd want it. <laughs> and that thing stayed in my bedroom for six years until... My parents sold the house and everyone moved and it got thrown away. Until your wife threw it away. No, I get it. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But yeah, uh, that's uh, so, so, so yeah, that was, uh, that was my big piece of swag for the movie was this Golden Books cardboard cutout. Well, I'm, I was going to say, I got more swag off this movie than any movie for Disney I'd, I'd written. And I, Anything good? I still have in storage cereal boxes with Milo. They had an Atlantis cereal out. Oh, I ate the cereal. <laughs> yeah. I have all, all the action figures. I have all of this cool stuff. I mean, all of that stuff in a box somewhere up in Olympia, Washington, in a storage uh, where I'm from. So, yeah. I mean, eventually, one of these days, I'll pull it all out and kind of reminisce about it. But I had all that stuff, man. They were just giving it down. I mean, also, it didn't sell as, you know, like it didn't. Let's just say it didn't sail off the shelves like they were hoping so mm-hmm. maybe that's why Disney was so generous and just, I said, I remember placing a call. I don't know who I placed it to. Maybe it was Don. I said, Don, geez, dude, can you get me some swag from the movie? I mean, there's uh, all this stuff and I got, I don't have any, you know, and I don't want to go mm-hmm. buy it. I mean, you know, walking into a store, it's bad enough to walk into a store to see a character you created on the, on the cover of a cereal box, knowing you're not getting one cent of that. <laughs> can you at least get me some swag, dude, or somebody? And this huge box arrived, and I opened it up. It was like Christmas, dude. You would have loved it. Mm-hmm. it was everything, mm-hmm. of everything was in there. I mean, you know, it was great. It was awesome. I still have it all. Nice. I was say, but uh, I'm seeing as you move your head. Is that the the Leviathan behind you on the wall there, dude? Good one. Yes. Okay. It is. It's a little blurry, so everyone's hearing the audio. But I'll I'll I'll, I'll screen cap this video so everyone can see what I'm this talking is a about. Cell from one of the. This is an actual cell from the movie. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Isn't that that's the sub, the Leviathan coming after the sub. Isn't that awesome? That's and that's such a good shot too. Yeah. Isn't that great? 
So that's, that's one phenomenal. Of the, that's, this is one of the other swaggy things that all the cast, uh, uh, the crew members get. After hmm. movies come out, they you get a chance. There's like a 30 day window where you can you can purchase a cell from the movie. Uh, I have one from Tarzan. I have one from Atlantis. For whatever reason, I missed the boat on Hunchback, and I like I never knew about that little mm-hmm. little perk. The new guy didn't. And know. They don't <laughs> charge you hardly anything. It's like a hundred bucks or less for a cell mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. probably now worth about five hundred or more. I mean, it just continues. I mean, they're they're pretty sought after, but they're in limited yeah. they're in limited runs, right? So it comes mm-hmm. this whole whole thing of it t- talks about it, and it, it gives you a oh, number. Wow. I know. So this one is, let's see, I thought I had a certificate of authenticity, limited edition, 29. There were only 29 of these, dude. So I got one. Yeah, good catch back there. I didn't even think of that. Look at you. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm trying to remember, was that behind you when we last spoke and I just didn't notice it? Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's cool. I mean, that's, yeah, that's again what I, you know, I just, I have such a, you know, soft spot for this movie. I mean, I do. And uh, people sometimes, uh, you know, out of the blue, send me stuff like uh, uh, I somehow somebody sent me a picture of from Comic Con of the crew of Atlantis, like done up in cosplay. Mm-hmm. Dude, it was awesome. It was it was awesome. I mean, I was like, whoa! I would have loved to have stood and got a picture with those guys. You know, at Comic Con, it would have been so fun. So yeah, there's so I mean, you know there's a lot of fans of that movie, dude. And yeah, so I was, I was gonna say like I feel like this movie's gained a nice kind of cult following in the years uh, since its release. You know, pe- people kind of millennials who who kind of dug that stuff keep bringing it back, bringing it back. So I was gonna ask like, have you had any other kind of fan encounters like like of recent times that that you know people come up talking about this movie? I get a lot of uh, people. Yeah, mostly guys. Interestingly enough, mostly guys, but some, you know, if you go on Instagram and you go to, like to cosplay, there's a, a bunch of cosplayers on Instagram, and and uh, if they're women, generally they have a princess Kita that they do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of Kitas out there and stuff. But uh, yeah, no, I'm you know, it's uh, I would say Hunchback probably had a more of an emotional connection to an audience that the reason why people, you know, like, you know, really have a charge about that movie. But this one is more like, it's a fun, it's just a throwback to, you know, like it's fun, classic adventure. Right. And so that, Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly guys that come up and go, Oh, I love that movie. That's a great film. You know? So it's all, listen, anytime I hear that, I just go, wow, you know, that just makes it all worth it, you know, really. You know, I mean, it's so, uh, and I remember you you had that experience of taking your friend to see it. I had an equal experience of taking a good buddy of mine to see it in Burbank after it came out. And that was fun, you know, because this is a guy I'd known for years and years and years through a lot of my struggles of trying to make it and all that stuff. And so for us to sit there and him to just dig the shit out of the movie was really cool, too. Yeah, you know. It's good. Yeah. So, okay, we'll we'll start wrapping it up. But I, I, I have a weird personal grievance with this movie, and I want to see if you're the one responsible. <laughs> so, the romantic in me was always strangely bothered that at the end, Milo and Kita never actually kissed. Don't ask me why this has bothered me. It always has. Okay. 
was that something deliberately done to anyone's to, to your knowledge at all or is it just kind of work, really like worked out that way i just always been curious about this you know I, that's a good question and i'm not sure i i can answer it uh i would you know what i can do is get back to you with the answer because i you know i'm in touch with kirk i you know mm-hmm. time i'll ask him because i never even thought of that but i th- yeah i think they yeah i don't know I don't know if that was a decision not to have them have that. I think, you know, one of the most romantic moments is when she takes him down under the water, in my opinion, in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if they just thought that was good enough, that, that mm-hmm. the, the idea that these two would end up together, they will eventually kiss, probably have some sort of Atlantean human hybrid creature that'll, you know, <laughs> get, get all the power and come and destroy the world in 40 years. I don't know. But the... I I don't know. That's a good question. I, I can you know I can ask that. I, uh, you know because it it would make sense and it would seem like in a traditional Disney film toward the end, end it, yeah. toward the end there would be a kiss between them as they stood looking out over Atlantis and 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 Milo looking at his new future in the decision to stay there and you know all that stuff. Yeah, I, you know it's funny too because you say you know when you started to say. You know, they never kiss. I was like, wait a minute, didn't they? Of course they did. Didn't they? They didn't? Nope. <laughs> okay. I Believe trust me, I you, know. buddy. I trust <laughs> you. In fact, we're going to watch it tonight because my girlfriend has never seen it. Oh, yeah. I'll look for that kiss. I'll, I'll give nice. her opinion on that. There you go. Yeah. There you but, go. You know, that's a, that's a good one. I Listen, I can't remember if I wrote a kiss at the end. I don't know. Yeah, it's like I, I, I wondered, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, or if it's like said in the screenplay, they do not kiss because it's not that kind of movie. movie. Well, I, you know what, I, I think that there was a debate about that, and I think that, in uh, in my weird, you know, memory, uh, that there was some question about whether that was the way they were going to go with it or not, and that there was a decision to sort of steer clear of traditional sort of, you know, expectations, if you will, you know? So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm sorry that's a grievance, pal. <laughs> if there's any lost <laughs> footage okay. that, I, that I discover, I'll let you know. <laughs> Great. So, yeah, I mean, that kind of is everything I kind of wanted to pick at. Is, is there anything else that comes to mind that you kind of wanted to get out there about the movie that, that really sticks out to you? No, I, I guess just that how much fun I had you know, writing it and how much fun I had working with Kirk and Gary and how fertile the the ground was in terms of our imaginations and the kind of people we brought on board who just totally believed in, in, in doing something different, you know, not a musical and, uh, how that was almost became a, a, you know, like a, a, a source of pride, you know, with those shirts, you know, more explosions, less songs, you know, so it was fun. It was fun. I mean, you know, it was like, it was a lot of fun. And uh, as a writer, I had a blast because I was encouraged rather than told to, oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. I was like, uncork it, man, and go for it. That was really the message. And uh, they trusted me uh, despite my gaff out of the gate, <laughs> which I still think wouldn't be a bad idea, you know, idea for a movie, but it's just a different movie. Um mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, my memories about Atlantis are all very good, all very good. There was never a moment. I remember, you know, we had, I had written the treatment, and, every, and those guys had loved it, and they had turned it in to uh, Peter Schneider and uh, Tom Schumacher and, 
who in turn, I'm sure, had everybody that was more important or in terms of the decision-making process read it as well, which would have been Eisner and Roy Disney. So we were, all of us convened for a meeting that they called. And so I remember Don Hahn, uh, Kirk and Gary and myself were sitting and we're just waiting for uh, Peter Schneider and John and Tom Schumacher to show up. And we're just like, it's that nervous energy about, God, oh, I hope they liked it because this is really the movie we want to do. And, all this stuff. and, uh, and I'll never forget, uh, Schneider came in the room, followed by Schumacher. He had the treatment in his hand and he threw it in the middle of the table. He said, that is the best fucking yep. thing I've read in a long time, you know, rather than, you know, when somebody throws something in the middle of the table and said, that piece of shit yep. is never getting made at this studio. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> so we were like, oh, my God. And then he said that. And we just looked at each other and went, oh, total relief, you know, because we knew they were going to make it. And we were so excited. We were so happy after that meeting, you know, so it was great. Those are great moments, you know. And you're lucky in a long career if you get a couple of those, you know, that where, you know, so you sort of lightning strikes and everybody's on the same page and nobody's saying, oh, we, you know, there's, it's interesting, but we really, it needs a lot of work. It was just like, we're in from the get go, you know, so it was awesome. Great. Well, Tab, I can't thank you enough for joining us once again. Uh, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, please, if you have anything you want to pitch, anything you're working on or coming out soon, uh, let, let, what, what you got? Anything? Oh, the Haunted Swordsman, dude. That's something I also, at this particular stage in my career, in my life, I'm very proud of. So I'll tell you what, it's, not, it's really difficult to talk about. I'm going to send you uh, a link and you can watch it. It's a short right now, but we're taking it mm -hmm. to sell it uh, as a series, hopefully, uh, soon. This whole, you know, the whole virus thing is brought everything kind of to a standstill we're mm -hmm. on the verge of going out uh but i think you'll dig it's a short made with puppets and that's all i'm gonna say excellent man have you right what? puppets what 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 you've lost your mind yes i have absolutely lost my mind and uh but i'm gonna send you the link uh mm -hmm. yeah i don't do i have your email address shoot me your email address i will i will give it to you and i'll send you the link without any explanation whatsoever you watch it and then we'll talk Sounds good, man. All right, cool. All right, well, thanks again. And, You're uh, welcome. I had a blast, as usual. And if you ever yeah, we'll, we'll get dealing with the other two, we can talk about those. Yeah, I was going to say, well, uh, I'm sure we'll get to Tarzan eventually. Tarzan, Brother Bear, you know. Brother Bear, that, now that, that came out 2000... Uh, I want to say 2003. Three, yeah. yeah. I, might, I might be pushing it, but hey, it's my show. I could do what I want. Yeah. There you go. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> Writer's <laughs> tears, baby. Writer's Indeed. Enjoy. <laughs> Tab, thanks again. All right, AJ. Have a good one, man. Stay safe. Atlantis will honor your names forever. All right. There we go. Thank you once again to Tab Murphy. Guys, yeah, great what did you, you take away from that? Because I'll tell you what. Like I said, I've said many times by now, this is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I was just a complete... Like just nerd, like going like oh. I guess to be I, I I take, it. it just sounded like it was so much fun to make this movie, man. That's right? kind of my take. I'm I'm kind of jealous, right? Like it just sounds like everyone involved with this film just had such a great time. It's kind of surprising too. They were willing to go with a a non musical format 
Uh, what was the movie that came out before Atlantis? Do you guys do you guys Fantasia know? Two Thousand was before yeah. this, and then yeah, before that so like definitely uh, a big dinosaur change. I think when did Dinosaur come out? Well, uh, Dinosaur is like around. Yeah, so I mean, they were getting a little bit more ex- like experimental at this time. So it, it's not it's not like a, a huge shock, but the fact what surprised me more than anything the fact that it wasn't like based off of anything. Right? There, yeah. There's really no source material here except for some mythology well it sounds like that's what got them so excited to do it in the first place their own unique especially tab his own unique story and atlantis itself wasn't even like the impetus for making the movie the movie is just like you want to do an adventure movie something kind of you know uh jules vernian yep. uh well they have to find something why not atlantis cool i mean AJ, what were your, some of your favorite parts i mean you did the interview yeah um i just i i really love just kind of learning a little bit about um just just how he researched atlantis um, the, if you really dig into some of the supplemental stuff that came out around this film's time, which is harder to get your hands on now, so hopefully we can kind of provide some of that. There's a lot of really unique research that went into this movie, and I loved hearing from him about how, yeah, he read the Plato and 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 studied some of the Edgar Casey stuff. Um, but hearing how he was just looking for the wacky stuff online, because why not? If some guy's got some crazy thing about. You know, the way Atlantean crystals work, doesn't matter if it's true or not, you're making a work of fiction, go for it. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. This is the guy who already butchered the classic novel, Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) What's mythology? (laughs) Right? I love hearing, too, and I wish it was available somewhere. What do you say it was 115 page? 150. 150 Yeah, so so you you figure in 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 a film script... Roughly one minute of, of 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 film is one page of script, so that would have been a two and a half hour movie oh, as scripted originally. Oh, God. it would have been like Cars. <laughs> it's not that long. Yeah. I I don't know why you never mind. <laughs> you and your weird thing with Cars. I'm just um, saying it's, but yeah. So uh, one thing I did want to expand on a little bit from the interview um, was talk a little bit about Edgar Case, um, who as he mentioned, was kind of the inspiration for this character named Zoltan, who is a, a clairvoyant mystic. And this that was very obviously film. named after the famous, uh, like, kind of uh, arcade, not, you know, the, yeah, the, that machine like, that gives you your fortune, Zoltan. Yeah. There's, they um, have these in Disney still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so this guy, um, he's kind of like the first famous psychic and clairvoyant. Uh, you know, he he had this whole thing where he would go into a meditative trance and could leave his body and extract information from the spirit realm about whoever he was, you know, investigating or talking to. And, you know, he, you know, crackpot. Uh, but he had this whole theory that the human race was divided into five colors, white, black, oh, no. red, yellow and brown. And the Atlanteans were the red race of humans. And he was kind of the one who originated this idea that the Atlanteans had this solar crystal that harnessed energy and they used the power, you know, all their technology. And I don't know what his basis for this was, but that's where you get the crystal from. So to him, this was all based on a true story. The movie Atlantis. Yeah, right. From, you know, it's, it's a history. <laughs> this guy sounds like, like the American version of Rasputin, except like we didn't decide to give him immense power. Yeah, Recover. yeah. Good point. Good point. So... A lot of the creation of Atlantis's kind of backstory and culture, um, and kind of just the way it worked, wasn't really scripted by Tab or anything. That kind of came from other people working on the film. Uh, a big part of the movie, especially its marketing of all things, you love was the language. language. Oh, it's so fun. So, uh, 
Star Trek fans are probably familiar with the name Mark Okron. Uh, he's famous for creating the Klingon and Vulcan languages, and he's done a bunch of you know made up languages. So, sometimes it's just like a few words. In the case of Atlantis, it's like a full blown language. Like in theory, much like like Klingon, you can learn it. I don't know wow. where the resources for it are anymore. Maybe they were more available twenty years ago. Um, but he he scripted out this whole thing uh, along with an alphabet that he worked on with uh, a guy named John Emerson. So. When you write in Atlantean, it's called, I'm going to butcher this word, Brustafiden uh, script. That sounded close. Yeah, right? So that means you read it, so you start reading left to right, and then you drop down a line, and you go right to left, and you just zigzag through the words. And this is this is a, a thing that a lot of you know, ancient languages actually would follow. Um, they chose this in part because it kind of has that flowing water motion to the to the script, which they thought kind of made sense for Atlantis. Yeah, it kind of keeps with the theme. That's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. So they made an entire alphabet, you know, that's analogous to to uh, you know the the phonetic alphabet we have. You know, thank the Phoenicians. And yeah. the the only letters that aren't actually part of the Atlantean language, but they made equivalences for just to, to use as a cipher, are C F J Q V X Z. CH and TH. We don't have letters for CH or TH either, so how about that? Well, exactly. But they don't even use that sound in in Atlantean. So my name doesn't exist in Atlantean, I guess. It's like how we can't do like, uh, we can't do like the rolling sounds very well in our language. Right. We don't don't really do the X sound very much or the clicking sounds of some Uh of their languages. So, but, uh, but they did, they did like put out this whole language. They, They had all kinds of promo things that were like, uh, you know, decipher this code. Here's here's the Atlantean alphabet. Can you read this message? And there's a lot of that in the early marketing. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, I've actually been listening to another podcast recently called the History of English Podcast. Uh-huh. And it's it's funny because, like, it starts from the beginning. So it starts at, like, that first root language, which they kind of uh, sort of allude to in the movie, which is, like, the ancient Indo-European language. And that's the root language that, that the Atlanteans must be using, right? Because from that, you get the Germanic and then the uh, Romantic languages. So so since Kida knew both French and English, and uh, French is a Romantic language and English is a Germanic language, the roots have to go back even further than that. Exactly. Oh, wow. Yes. Now, Look having, at you. That's impressive. Having said that, some, some of it is kind of bunk here. Like the idea in the beginning of the movie where he's like, they mistranslated this one letter. It's not Ireland. It's Iceland. I'm like, it's not, it's not, it's not, <laughs> like not how have, translation works. Yeah. It's not like they would have called those. It's not like the, the names were Iceland and Ireland for those people, you know? And well, I, so to, to piggyback off that, I, I, I didn't want to get too deep in the weeds with this because I don't want this to be a three hour podcast, although it very for me easily could be. Uh, I have, I'll put the link in the show notes, but this, this guy on, on it's like archive now. You have to go on archive.org uh, on a site called Urban Geek. He took all the supplemental materials from the original film's website and the DVD bonus features to create this really deep timeline of the movie's entire mythology going all the way back. To the shepherd of the Shepherd's Journal, a guy named apparently Aziz, who um, fell into a crack in the ground, literally, and managed to stumble his way into Atlantis. So, uh, um, where is I going with that? Oh, the the whole the whole Iceland thing. You know, the, basically, the, the the journal changed hands many, many, many times throughout history. Um, that's where that Viking prologue comes into play. That was that was one of the just kind of stops of the journal. Um, they took it to Iceland, but then it went to like a whole bunch of other places 
and then just kind of coincidentally ended up back at Iceland, which kind of worked out for Thaddeus Thatch and oh, his crew. So, like, the uh, reason that was uh, a Viking shield and all that that Milo had. Exactly, exactly. But, like, according to the, all this mythology, um, at one point, the journal ended up in the hands of the Mayans. And that's why it's not that the movie drew inspiration from Mayan architecture. The Mayans drew inspiration for their architecture from Atlantis, you see. Oh, yeah. But then America Vespucci. Oh, good. I'm just glad that they didn't like just do kind of like a Greek thing with Atlantis, which is kind of what a lot of people exactly because yeah. so much we get is from Plato. Mm-hmm. I've got a, it. It's something more vibrant and kind of uh, interesting, and not an inter- not nothing against the Greeks, but it's <laughs> different than that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so then Americo Vespucci gets the journal from the Mayans. He takes it back to Italy, gives um, America, it to Leonardo as in da Vinci. The America, America? Yeah, the guy who actually discovered North America and not Christopher Columbus. Well, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci is actually the first person to actually translate the journal. He was technically the first one to learn Atlantis, and that inspired a lot of his inventions. So good job, Leo. Uh, you know, like at some point, Benjamin Franklin read it. Like it's course, all over the place, which kind of makes it like. Okay, uh, Mr. Harcourt, how have you not heard of this? It's been, it was in the Uffizi for a while. Like, it's been around. You should know about it, but whatever. It's a movie. Uh, so yeah, architecture wise. So I, you mentioned the Greek columns. I mentioned the whole Mayan thing. There's, there's hints of Cambodian, Indian, and Tibetan designs in there. It just kind of brings it a little bit more of an otherworldly feel because it's, it's rooted in realism, but it's, it's stuff that a lot of people aren't terribly familiar with. And then there's just kind of a big water theme thrown around there. It's almost like, uh, you know, you know, it, it, it all kind of reminds me of like going to the Cheesecake Factory, but more blue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. I mean that in the best way best, possible. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, but one thing that I found interesting, there is, there's a feature length documentary on the making of this. It's one of the best making ofs for any Disney movie, aside from that really good Beauty and the Beast one we got with its Blu-ray release. Uh, and I'll link to that as well in the show notes. But there's one great part where artistic supervisor of background, Lisa Keen, uh, talks about how she kind of took upon herself to figure out how Atlantis functioned, like as an ecosystem. And she kind of was able to cheat a little bit because she could use this this crystal as a catalyst. So the basic idea is, you know, the, the city is on this elevated plateau and the crystal is drawing up seawater from the ground, and then it disperses out the disc and down the sides. That's why you have this, like, kind of floating waterfall appearance. That water is hitting magma on the, you know, underground, creating steam, and that's where you get your, your drinking water. That's how plants are watered. This the is plants are creating oxygen. than I would have thought. Right? But then that's what's cool, is they figured all this out, but it's not like they had a scene in the movie. This is where, how we breathe. Exactly. Like, like no one ever explains it. But you are but, wondering that, too. Yeah, like but it's just a know, massive it, bubble. So how's oxygen getting down there? Exactly. It's it's very Star Wars in this approach. Where, you know, George Lucas didn't explain, you know, what an oil bath is, but you know, it's a robot going in a thing of oil, it must clean his joints, I guess. Sure. You know, like you just kind of go with it, you know? Uh so it's cool that they kind of put that much thought in, into how everything works. Uh the other thing I want to talk about too is uh, very briefly the the music for this movie is just incredible. Oh, that I, was I, the standout for me This soundtrack has been in my rotation pretty much since its release in 2001. Yeah, uh, they awesome. Mo- they give some moments for the soundtrack to really shine, like the uh, the sub kind of its its maiden voyage and and, and Kita entering the crystal chamber. But uh, it's composed by James Newton Howard, who you know also did Dinosaur, and he's worked with Disney a bunch of times. But what I loved is um, he kind of had like this kind of military industrial complex sound for the human explorers. Um, but whenever it came to the Atlantean motifs, he utilized sounds of an Indonesian orchestra. 
uh, so that's where you kind of get the chimes and the flutes and the, the the more percussive sounds. Which again, it's like it's rooted in reality, but it's relatively unfamiliar to an American audience. So it just lets it kind of have this great otherworldly sound. And yeah, it's uh, such a good soundtrack. I, it should be on Spotify and all that. Go listen to it because it's great. So uh, that's kind of what I want to touch on the movie that Tab and I didn't really talk about in the in the interview. I mean, I, again, we could go on and on, but I, I don't want the show to go too, too long. But I did want to talk about some of the kind of supplemental materials and, and external things about the film. Starting, of course, because it's the Minotis, uh, about the video games of the movie. Always you the guys, video games. Do you guys remember the Search for the Journal and Trial by Fire games that were uh, released on PC? I remember I one of not. them came with one of them came with cereal, if I recall correctly. That is Search for the Journal. That was like the prequel. So Search for the Journal had you playing in is like a just a nondescript stormtrooper uh, during the um, 1911 expedition to Iceland to get the journal, and you're actually like the guy who snags the journal off a pedestal. It was kind of neat because it had a lot of the original voice cast um, and they were kind of talking you as you went through and, and you were solving some basic puzzles and there's some very like combat against these weird little uh, creatures. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't a very good game. I mean, I remember I remember looking at it even like what, 2001. I'm like, this is almost kind of a FPS throwback. <laughs> yeah, it was very, like very quake. plain graphics and everything. There was one was fun no part happen. where you got to fly the, one of those little airplanes that they fly in the movie. Oh, the, the, the crossbow airplanes? Yeah, they, they call it the wing because, well, it's, so it's always confusing as a kid. The official name of that craft is the Whitmore wing. But like you're talking to Thaddeus Thatch on the radio and he's like telling where to go. He's like, you know, cross through that valley. Keep going. You won't be far from the wing. And I'm like, the what? What do you wing of what? Like, I had no idea what he meant until I finally like, piecing it. I was like, oh, the airplane. Got it. OK, let's fly. I, no, the best thing about this is that they are launched off of like a crossbow. Yeah, right. Oh, my it's, gosh. It's a great design. That is uh, cool. So Trial by Fire, same studio. This, these guys are called Zombie Studios. Trial by Fire is this uh, a very loose retelling of the film. This time you are playing as Milo and it just doesn't make any sense. Is this, it's still a shooter, right? Yeah, because, yeah, you know all the shooting Milo did in the movie. Big even, gun fan. Even the cover for the game, it's like this drawing of Milo, but it tries to like, make him look like like an action hero. He's like kind of like oddly beefed up a bit. He's got this super intense pose. He's like holding this weird like Atlantean weapon thing. So it's like, what are you doing? Was this the one you got from the serial? Or no, so Search the- for the Journal came with the serial. Trial by Fire was a standalone game. It also came with Search for the Journal if you didn't get it with your serial. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, of course I played them, but they were not very good. I thought you liked Trial by Fire. No, I thought I'm you sure liked I- the serial one. I'm sure I convinced myself that I liked it. Yeah, well, I liked Search for the Journal more for the story. Like, it was just kind of cool to be like, oh, here's like the prequel to the to the movie. That's That's fun, but... It wasn't a good game. Uh, they did do the kind of standard Disney platformer for PlayStation. It was a 3D platformer. Um, it was, it was I, okay. It was no... Uh, I remember the Treasure Planet game was actually Treasure Planet good. game was yeah, excellent for was PS2. Great. It was a great game. Uh, but going back and looking at this game, it actually kind of holds up visually because it was very flat shaded. So it actually captures the visual style of the movie pretty well. So I, I can't remember too well like 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 how it plays. I, I We had it, but... I would imagine it doesn't hold up great. But there were also, um, developed by THQ, a series of games for both the Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance. And looking at them on YouTube, it's kind of funny, because the Game Boy Color one, like, just visually, <laughs> looks a lot better. That's funny. The, hmm. the sprites are bigger. It was such a weird it's, time it's that they're odd. making different, like, we have to make the Game Boy Color game and the Game Boy Advance game, and they're going to be completely different. Yeah, right. Weird times for, you know, the, mo- the movie tie-in. But yeah, you got to do it. 
You yeah. had to do the the movie video game. It was so much easier. It's like just make the Super Nintendo and Genesis games and, and the Game Boy game and the yeah. So it's yeah they had they had five games for this movie. That's kind of crazy, it's right? Boy, I mean, it was, it, that was such a big part of their thing. But like, there has to be the game. Like Hercules had a game. Tarzan had a game. Oh, don't they get me started on that Hercules game. That game was great. <laughs> it was great, but that it was, game was hard. really good. It was very hard, but it was cool. I remember watching cutscenes over and over and over just because I kept dying. Hercules, come <laughs> out, yes. right, yeah. The blocky FMV. <laughs> like that 200 by 100 resolution or something. Wasn't that bad on the PlayStation. Like, I don't know CD. numbers. <laughs> yeah, Sega CD. <laughs> just get that little square. Right. <laughs> Unless you had the 32X, then it looked a little better. AJ, this isn't the only Atlantis movie, right? I recall there being a, a what I assume was a high quality directed video <laughs> sequel. Okay, so they they released a film in two thousand three called Atlantis Two: Milo's Return. What it actually was was the first three episodes was meant to be a new TV series called Team Atlantis. They put this show into production. They wrote scripts. They recorded the episodes with the actors. They got animating it, and then the movie kind of didn't do so good. So they're like, okay, we're not doing a TV show anymore. But they had three episodes basically done. So they kind of edited it together and made a direct-to-video sequel using that footage. This seemed to be a common thing they would do back then. Because wasn't the Hunchback movie the same way? The the sequel to Hunchback? No. Wasn't it a TV show? I don't show? know about that, but they did a lot of TV shows. There, there was an Aladdin show, there was a Little Mermaid show. Well, that that was one was popular. Show? I remember that one was around a while. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure the Hunchback sequel was the same as this. They took yeah. the first three episodes. It wasn't I think you are wrong. I, I will I will bet you on this. We'll find oh, out. All right, then. I if only we had a podcast that did an episode about Hunchback and yeah, Notre Dame I, that would have researched this already. I don't think we talked about Hunchback and Notre Dame too very much. Yeah. Well, so, again, I, you know, you, you're me going on and on about how this is one of my absolute favorite movies. You think I'd be like, oh, a sequel. Great. I've never seen this movie. I can't, I can't bring myself to do it. I tried to start it once and checked out after a couple minutes. I mean, you know, no offense to the people who worked on it. But you can tell it was supposed to be a TV show because it just doesn't look good. It's got that kind of bad late '90s TV animation. I mean, if, if you told me there was a whole like you know like twenty episodes or something of like an Atlantis cartoon show, I probably would have watched that. Or right. if there was like some kind of you know even just straight to like what passes a straight to video sequel back in those days, I would have watched that too. But like something about this, it just like makes me sad. I'm like, uh, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, they have like they have, they have some dumb animal companion in there, and is it still like the original voice cast? Is it? Is it it is, Fox? except no, it's not Michael J. Fox. It is uh, James Arnold Taylor uh, okay. filling in for him. But generally speaking, it was the rest of the cast. Uh, you know, Chris Summers was back. Uh, oh wow! Um, I mean, it was it, it's fun. you know you didn't have to get James Garner because his character died. Spoilers <laughs> if you haven't seen it. No. So yeah, like 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 yeah, it, it, it was it was legit. And here's the crazy thing I learned researching this: I never heard this until I started digging into this. So the guy who was working on the show worked on Gargoyles, and they actually had planned somewhere in this 18 episode run or whatever it was a Gargoyles crossover episode. That's so weird. Yeah, that would be that so bizarre. The time the time eras don't match. Well, because no, so so here's how we're. I'll oh, the quick, quick, quick off the top of my head rundown here. Um, you know, they, they still set in like the 1914, 15 period of time. Um, they go to Paris 
and uh, the Dr- Dramora, is that the name of the kind of bad guy gargoyle who turns good at some it, point it, in the show? It, it, I know. We, we can yeah. get into gargoyles. It, it, How it's weird. A, it's, a, it's maybe our biggest 90s Disney blind spot is gargoyles. It yeah, was we're going to do that thing. someday soon. Binge watch the whole thing and do an episode. But anyway, uh, she's trying to turn all the gargoyles in Paris into monsters that she can control. Like They wouldn't be like gargoyles like she is, just basically living rock. Um the team Atlantis is investigating this. There's this whole thing where uh, Dr. Sweet knows the other gargoyle who's trying to stop her somehow. And then Mole develops this weird crush on Dramora that she kind of thinks is funny. But then the crystals that the Atlanteans have come into play. And there's this statue that Dramora is trying to get. I mean, it, it was like legit, like, like straight up. Here's some gargoyle stuff mixed with Atlantis. And Weird. it's going to inform what happens in the Gargoyles TV show. There was even, I think, like, like uh, one of the issues of the Gargoyles comic they did for a while, like, Dramora had an Atlantean crystal in the comic. Huh. Like, they still played with it, even though, like, it never actually came out. That's neat. Just so bizarre. Man, why it's did cool. we never get into Gargoyles? I just remember uh, Well, me and you were a little young for it, I think, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think that's that when design. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air came on. And I like that show. Yeah, I was still watching true. DuckTales reruns. No, they, they were they were all part of Disney Afternoon. You couldn't watch the DuckTales reruns. Gargoyles was on. I was watching DuckTales somehow. Yeah. Look, I was watching Of That Ilk, okay? A quack pack, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so... Uh... I think I, for one, think that this that you could return to this world as a comic book, and that would be really rad. I'm surprised, yeah, comic books because I mean they were doing comic books of kind of like a lot of like semi abandoned properties for a while, yeah. like even you know before there was kind of a uh, Darkwing Duck revival on uh, they, the they did Duck Figment Tales. comics they not comic, too long ago. They well, did it's Green been, comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you, been you have um, for Star Wars to expand a lot of those stories, and you have the the Mike Magnolia art references in the film, which I didn't really talk about it yet, but. He, you know, he was an art consultant. Everyone pretty well knows that if you're a fan of this movie. Um, I mean, heck, get him involved. Let him let him work on the art for for an Atlantis comic book. That'd be incredible. That'd yeah, be fun. We're, I think we're we're getting there because this movie does seem to be rebounding in popularity a bit. So yeah, you know, just like catching it. up. Here, who, who knows? Never say never. I guess. Mm-hmm. Boy, that'd be cool. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about where you find Atlantis in the parks because there's not a ton of it, but there was some. Uh, originally, this I read this years ago and it blew my mind. But they were planning to put an Atlantis attraction in Disneyland where the submarine voyage was. Oh man, that would have been something else. Like wow, like, I can't even can't imagine. Into, like what, think about that with the music and everything. Oh, that would have been so good. Uh, instead, we got Finding Nemo, which is fine. It's a great ride, <laughs> but it's cramped. Oh, hurts my heart. Yeah, I mean, it would it would have been pretty neat, but. It would have had the same problem that the submarine rides have been having for a while of capacity and just the kind of see. Uh, that's why you need to put it. a movie that didn't do so well. In yeah, there. Maybe crowd control, Mike. The crowd control. Oh, trust me, the, the the ride's crowd controlling itself a little bit. Yeah, right. Uh, but they they did have walk around characters uh, when the film came out. I know Milo, Kita, and Mole were 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 around. Milo, Kita, face characters. Mole was like more of a you know out the costume. Did it's we ever weird see when, like, any of them? Do you guys remember? No. No, I, I mean, I, I never saw them. I don't know if they were only in Disneyland. Maybe. Because that, that's where I feel, I feel like everything I hear about stuff in the parks was Disneyland that, that I found. So maybe that's it. Because as recently as a couple months ago, um, 
Milo and Kita were, were out and about, you know, for, for meet and greets. They like to bring them back for a lot of these kind of special events that they do. Right. Sometimes and just whatever. The cool thing is that people are posting online is when you meet Milo, he has the Shepherd's Journal with him and he'll give it to you. And it's like an actual reproduction of the book. Oh, how cool. Including the, like the pages missing where that talks about the crystal. Like, oh. like I, it'd be very hard for me to not just take it and run because that'd be so cool. Like, <laughs> no, you won't get very far. Disney, I will buy it. Make it a hundred bucks. I'll buy it. I promise. <laughs> uh, the last thing they or they kind of had in Disneyland was uh, they did one of the Main Street dioramas for the for the film. Man, it's the, I, it's I the scene where they're that. right. It's the scene where they're swimming uh, in front of the big mural underwater, and uh, I'll have a picture of it here. But it's so cool that they did that. Um, and. My favorite thing that I did get to experience with this movie in the parks that is sadly no longer there. In the first iteration of the animation building at California Adventure, Atlantis was part of the uh, kind of montage that played in the lobby there. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Atlantis part was one of my favorite things to do in that park is just sit there in that lobby. And they, it was so great. It had that 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 crystal chamber music mm. theme play. Everything got all watery. I mean, there was like the giant screen with the Leviathan on it, and then another giant screen with the the city of Atlantis. It just looks so good. I miss that so much. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, at Port Discovery in Tokyo Disney Sea, um, parts of the background music come right from the film. Which I'm, I'm surprised this music isn't used more around the parks, to be honest, because you'll you'll get that a lot. A lot of older songs will creep up from from movies. I mean, they play Rocketeer everywhere. Exactly. Even, uh, yeah. Last Starfighter. Yeah. That theme will get played around in a lot of places, and it's not like that was a big hit. I don't even think that was Disney, but <laughs> they'll play that everywhere. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, that's kind of all my, uh, my my stuff I wanted to share. So Very let's nice. just kind of talk a little bit about like, you know, what, what, what do you guys think of this movie? What's it mean to you? What, what's your memory of it? What, what, what do you want to say? My biggest memory of it is you liking it so so much, AJ. This movie. <laughs> well, we, you talked about it a bit, that cardboard cutout that was in your room. So, yeah. Like all my, I told some of my friends that I've, I've had since high school that we were recording this episode. They're like, oh, that movie that AJ had the cardboard cutout of. <laughs> <laughs> I had that thing for six years in my room. I feel like it was there for a while. I know that's, uh, that yeah, must it, be right, but I feel like it was there forever. Well, when you're, yeah, when we were that young, that feels like a long time. Well, we, the movie came out in 2001. We moved out of that house in 07, so. I'm shocked I was you, like, you had it thrown away. You didn't keep it. Well, I think I don't think he threw it away. I think the, the it, probably, it probably was not my choice. Well, to be yeah. honest, you, when we moved out of that house, you like just weren't there and didn't come help. So we uh, yeah, kind we of probably threw it away out of and, anger. out of anger. Thirteen years, let it also, go. It was not in the best of shape because <laughs> it was no, right I mean, by the window. It was like discolored. Oh, the yeah, sun was beating on. down on it constantly. Yep. But it, it had a good it had a good run. I I mean I remember thinking that this movie was just so much fun. I was like fifteen or so when it came out, so pretty much the the perfect age for it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we've always liked Disney, but, you know, this this really was, like, a very much a boys' Disney movie, right? Uh-huh. And it, it kind of felt, felt like that, right? It was just sort of fun and adventure. People die! <laughs> well, right? well, well, it's watching- funny, because my wife and I were watching it together here uh, a, little, a bit ago, and she was, like, shocked. How many people were like clearly being killed off in the sh- in the movie? Yeah, there's, there's a there's high that, body count in this movie. There's that one part where the the, the 14 year old engineer is like closing that door and leaves yeah, the one guy by right? the like, leave it open intense. for a second. I mean, that's like right out of uh, Titanic. Titanic, yeah, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Can't. I was like, oh my god, yeah, like after that, it's like, well, there's 300 of us, and now there's about a dozen of us left, like, dang! Yeah, let's, like, light the candle, and I'll have this, like, sad moment of mourning, it's like, oh my gosh, like, they're going for it. Right? We got, we got, you know, uh, Kita showing us her butt and stuff, it's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I, I I always thought this movie was just a ton of fun, and uh, I, I sort of liked this like weird trend we had in the early two thousands of these two D animated adventure movies, like this uh, uh, Sinbad even Treasure and Planet, Treasure Planet, yeah. Oh, not none of them did very well, which sadly, so that trend stopped. I feel like real quickly. So I, I wondered about this. If if this movie came out today, and for sake of argument, we'll say it's CG because everything is. Do you think it would work today? Would people be more open to an action adventure film that's that's animated? Oh, there's a lot more. Like I feel like once CG happened, for whatever reason, people were just so much more open to these animated movies being more genres. I mean, you have kind of more adventure ish films and stuff like Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon or just more straight up comedies really than, you know, the vast majority of anime films now are not musicals or princess uh, stories like they used to be. And it's worth mentioning too, you know, like when we say like this movie didn't do well, like com- compared to say Sinbad or Treasure Planet, it was a big hit. It made yeah, like... I mean, the movie still turned a profit, <laughs> just not right. much of a It profit. made $186 million worldwide off a budget of 120 so typically you want to double your budget really so it, it, again, it's not great. Yeah, so it's not it's not great, and that's why like you know a lot of these things were were canceled. But it wasn't like a we have to reforecast our whole quarterly earnings disaster thing. Right? Like maybe Treasure Planet was sadly. And I, I hate too that like you know sometimes these movies it seems like that. And I, I think Tab was talking about it too. It seems like that's the legacy that people just talk about is the box office. And I'm uh-huh. glad with this movie now it seems like people are just talking about how much fun the movie is and how much we're far, they we're far it. enough away from that. Like, you know, like who talks about the box office of the rescuers down under or right. uh, like who cares or black cauldron, even like no one cares anymore. They're just movies. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we kind of can enjoy them as such. And I said, when I was watching it, I forgot just how funny the movie is a lot of times too. I think I was dying at the, at the, the, the line, the, uh, the older lady does the, the radio <laughs> lady with like the ships going down <laughs> the submarine. And she is, she's just like, she, he took his suitcase. Honey, I don't think he's coming back. <laughs> and they're like, get up. Don't call me. I'll call you. Yeah. It's like, you know what? I'll call, yeah, she, I'll call you back. Me. No, no. I'll call you. Yeah. Yeah. She, co- she was definitely the, the funniest. That was that. That was that was one of the last things that um that that Vern did, right? Uh, yeah. Well, Ernest. so yeah, he he was um diagnosed with lung cancer and like like knew his, his expiration date was before the movie was going to be done. Uh, in fact, you know, this is kind of a well known fact too. That the last line of uh, you know, "I ain't so good at speechifying," uh, that wasn't him. That was the guy who uh, went on to do Slinky Dog's voice oh, really? today. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that was the only time they had to use you know sound alike. I love Leonard Nimoy too. He's great. Oh, mm-hmm. such such perfect casting, and I love the 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 way that they use the Yen Sid design to uh, for for the king. Oh, it's right. just so cool, so yeah, cool that they Yen pull Sid that off. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. It is very very similar, especially when you see the giant stone version of him at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I you know I just I still remember the first trailers for this movie because it was so unlike anything Disney had done. But like Tab said, in, in a weird way, it's exactly what Disney had done. You know, with, with films like Twenty Thousand Leagues, they just animated it mm-hmm. and brought it back. Yeah, a long so break between the two. We, we, we Tab and I kind of brought it up a little bit. But what do you guys think of the rumors that swirl around of this getting a, a live action remake starring Tom Holland? <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, don't. I, 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 yeah, I, that'd be great. <laughs> I don't believe them. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't mind. I mean, with a lot of these live action remakes, I kind of have this thing like, ah, they're they're okay. To, they're interesting to watch once. Usually, I don't think they typically ever do anything to kind of surpass or really even add to the legacy of the of the originals. It seems like like right like that Lion King movie came out and made 
a zillion dollars not too long ago, right? And I no still, one's like, I still, about it. Right, it's still, it's like, like, if dying. people are like, let's watch Lion King, I think they still mean yeah. the animated... I mean, maybe... A bit of a flash in the I could see something like this, though, being a little different, just because of the, the, the tones throughout it can maybe be better in a live-action format. And it, it, in the case of this, it's neat just in the idea of, like, well, this movie almost gets a second chance, right? Right, so yeah. That's, that's kind of more where I'm coming from. But also, in types of this, too, like, it would be really expensive to do this right. as a live action That's why movie. I almost wonder if it wouldn't be better to do it, like, not quite all the way Avatar style, but more of a, like, a, a, a CG stylized film yeah. that is going for quasi-realism, but still has some style to it. You get to do a lot of what they did with The Mandalorian, right? Where you're, like, filming in front of those, like... Not, yeah. not oh, green that's screen, it, but Mike. Computers. Yeah. That's it. We bring back Team Atlantis as a Disney Plus series. There you go. Oh, my God. We solved it. There we go, everybody. Yeah. I think that's I the answer like, for a lot of things lately. Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> Disney Plus. We'll get the live action version of this before the live action version of Black Cauldron, sure. No. <laughs> what about Treasure Planet, though? Tre- well, that was that's a rumor, too. Oh, man. Is it really? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't say no again because I like that movie a lot, too. So yeah, that's uh, that is Atlantis. Uh, you know, I hope once again everyone forgives me my, my little dip into the the new millennium. Well, but it was April. I mean, we can have fun in April. That's right. And, Especially and as these, these days, we use a little fun. This is our show. We do what we want. Yep. Right. We'll Don't be back in nineties. We'll be back in nineties. In fact, I thought. Where are we going in the nineties next time, Michael? Well, I thought for our, our next episode that it might be fun to talk about our first resort. Ooh, and now I'm just like I'm like thinking, wait, when did this this did open in the nineties, right? But the yacht and beach club. Perfect. One of our favorites. Yes, absolutely. So I, I think I think that'll be good. Nineteen ninety, woo! All right, we're oh, good. Just me. Oh yeah, yeah, no. We 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 squeak in there with that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's early stuff. But yeah, that's what we'll be doing. Yacht the yacht and beach club. Two for one. And then you had the beach club villas at some point. Well no, that was like two thousand tens. We'll talk is that about how, that. How late they are? Wow, it feels like they've been there forever. I don't know. I think pretty. I think it's not that old. All right, great job, Edge Guy. Yes. Oh, thank job. you, thank Very you, nice. thank you. And it once again, thank you, uh, thank you, Tab Murphy. Yeah, as always, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, we're out of here for this month. You can find us at nineties.disney.com, where you'll get links to the subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, whatever, and and Overcast and Pocket Casts and all the casts. Uh, so many. And, you know, in the past, we've said, you know, rate, review the show. It turns out that doesn't do anything. So, you know what I want you to do? If you know a friend who you think might like the show, tell them about it. Tell them to listen to it. Uh, that's the best way to get more people to listen to the show is to tell people to listen to the show. It totally would have thought. Rate and review it anyways because it makes me feel good. Yeah, I mean, Mike <laughs> always needs that, that little bit of positive reinforcement I need validation. in his life. <laughs> so, think of Michael as he sits home alone with his dog. <laughs> <laughs> playing all the video games. <laughs> Oh, Watching all the Disney movies. Right? Right. Uh, but yeah, and uh, if you want to uh, talk about anything uh, with us and that we talk about on the show, you know, hit us up on, on Twitter at 90s Disney Pod. Uh, find our Facebook page or send us an email at 90s Disney Podcast at gmail.com. I promise you I'll respond if you email it. Uh, and then until next month, where we go to the Yacht and Beach Club, we'll be uh, sitting on the shores of Stormalong Bay, sipping on a Tommy Bahama Mama, which I think I actually well, I clearly didn't drink in the 90s because I wasn't 21 yet. But they don't have those anymore. It's sad. Uh, until then, stay radical and stay safe. Go inside. You, right now. Get inside. Wash your hands. Wash them. <laughs> Atlantis is waiting. 
do you say? <laughs>